welcome once again to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and I'm sitting in my little studio above in Stockholm, Sweden, where I've been living for the last 23 odd years. Now, I haven't been living in the studio for 23 years, but I've been living in Sweden for 23 years. And if you're, this is your first time listening to this podcast, well, the idea is to bring you a podcast every week about the Irish abroad, the 70-odd million of us with Irish heritage living in the four corners of the world. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch over the first few episodes. We've had an amazing response so far and looking forward to growing the podcast as time goes on. Um, all of these podcasts come out on the Arrow Man in Stockholm feed. That was the first podcast I ever had about three or four years ago. And now you'll find the Premier Swedes podcast on there as well. A few episodes as we go along about Swedes who played in the Premier League, but also the Irish and Sweden podcast and this podcast, The Global Gale. So if things pop up in your feed, if you subscribe and things pop up in your feed and you go, that's not what I was expecting, that's why it's happening, lads, right? Now, there may be a reason in the, in the future to, to change that, but we're not going to change it just yet because um, there's a fairly good reason for that, actually, because some of the stuff that turns up on Irish and Sweden and Arrowman and Stockholm might be interested to, of interest to you as well. You don't have to listen to it, but if you want to listen to it, sure it's there for you. Go ahead. And uh, if you're interested in soccer, if you're interested in football at all, I suggest maybe having a listen to the episode of Irish and Sweden, which is going to come out now next week there, because uh, I'm a little bit worn out, lads. I have to admit that this week, because Shamrock Rovers have been here to Stockholm to play against Hugh Gordon's EF in the Europa Conference League. So uh, it was the Talisides last group game in the Conference League, so they came over and it was mad, because when you work as a journalist, as I do here in Stockholm, and people know that you're here in Stockholm and, you know, it just goes nuts altogether. So everybody from lads at the club asking you about oh, the players and this kind of stuff. And I interviewed a couple of lads who play football over here. Kevin Walker, whose father's from Carlo. Kevin's born and raised in Sweden. We did a podcast with him. And Zach Elbuzadi from Swords, who plays for AIK here. And it just, the whole week just went wild altogether. So it's been, uh, it's been hard to find the time to string all these things together. But the podcast there this week on the Irish in Sweden, it's going to be a little bit of that Shamrock Rovers trip. And a friend of mine, uh, a wheelchair user named Graham Merrigan and about how he found access in Stockholm because anybody can talk about the football but I thought we might talk about something a little bit different so that'll be coming up there but on this podcast the wonderful the magical the global gale podcast that you're listening to right now uh, we're going to tell us of a different story of emigration so one of the first people I was put into contact with when when the first episode of this podcast came out there was an explosion of people going here I have a story for you right and uh, this gentleman came up he was put in touch with me by a chap called Stephen Quinn. Stephen is out in the Middle East now. I think he's based in Abu Dhabi and um uh, or maybe he's in Dubai, I can't remember which he's in, but certainly Stephen's there in the Middle East, and he's a chap that I played music with growing up, lovely fellow altogether, works in uh, in all sorts of digital marketing out there. And Stephen said to me, you have to talk to this man, right? Now, I can't even remember if he told me how he came across uh, Con Hurley, who's a writer and journalist uh, from Cork in Ireland, but who grew up, spent seven years growing up in London. But he said he's written the most amazing book about his family's experience of emigration, right? So I said, fair enough. I got in touch with Con. Con, of course, was only too delighted to speak to the Global Gale podcast. Everybody wants to speak to you, lads. Everybody wants to tell their story, and that's what's going to keep us going. So he's written a book called Gone to America, and that covers uh, his Cork family's journey and how many of them who went and made their lives in America. I think there was a dozen of them all told from his mother's side and his father's side, the family, many from his father's side, and an awful lot of them wound up in San Francisco on the West Coast. Now, you and me are thinking San Francisco and Silicon Valley, 
Valley and all that kind of thing. There's loads of opportunity there. Back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, and indeed back in the 1850s and 1860s, it wasn't like that at all. It was a completely different kettle of trout altogether. You didn't just go to uh, Dublin City University and get some sort of fantastic computing degree or that kind of thing and then just head off to Silicon Valley. Oh, no, 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 no. You took the boat over and you got off the boat as so many Irish people did at Ellis Island in New York and you did your immigration thing there. And if you were lucky, and many people were lucky, that opened the door to this vast, vast continent, essentially, that is North America. And from there then, some people never made it out of New York. Some people went to Queens and they went to the Bronx and they set up shop there. And if you go through the list of the firefighters and the cops and the city officials there, you'll find many Irish people there. But cons people eventually moved on and a lot of them wound up in San Francisco. And I suppose there is a lot of books out there in terms of genealogy and stories that are told. But what's unique about Cons is the access to material that he had that has never been seen before. So it's an absolutely brilliant book. And as you'll hear in the conversation, I sort of told him that, you know, when you're interviewing somebody for a podcast and you're as busy as me, you get a book and you'll just, you'll sit down, you'll read it as quickly as you can. You go, yeah, yeah, great. And you'll write down a few questions. And this book, I went, hang on a second, lads, because this is the literary version of a pint of Guinness, right? You want to savour this, lad. You don't just want to go, right, gulp that down, hit the no, 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 you want to take your time over this. So I got in touch with Khan, and he's going to be our only guest on the podcast this week just to talk about the writing of his book and the story of his family and uh, how so many of them from West Cork uh, came to be in America at that stage. But also we began with his only ex- experience of growing up as a young Irish kid going to school in London. So this is the interview with Khan Hurley. I hope you enjoy it. And I'll be back a little bit afterwards just to say one or two more things, a little bit of housekeeping about uh, the Irish community around the world. But uh, for now, here's the interview with Con Hurley, author of Gone to America. I suppose, Con, given that this is the Global Gale podcast, shall we start with your own history of living outside Ireland? Because I believe, was it between the ages of seven and 14 that you lived in England? Yes, um, my mother and father were born in, 19, or in 1948. I was born. And we lived in uh, East Cork, Middleton and Carrigtool for seven years. And times were very tough in Ireland during the 50s. There was no employment and, you know, things were tough. So my father and mother moved to Dagenham. And, of course, Dagenham was known as Little Cork because of the Ford's factory and there were so many Cork people working there. And um, we lived there for four years, I think. It was very working class, very interesting. Uh, went to a, a local convent school. And then when I was 10 and a half, I sat for the 11 plus, uh, which was an English exam that time to get into grammar schools. And I got into grammar school. I passed the 11 plus and um, I was able to go to a grammar school. The, the problem was, is that um, the good Catholic one was uh, a little distance away and it was reserved for the upper echelon, shall we say, of, uh, of society in East London. And we weren't part of that. But anyway, with the bishop's permission, I was allowed to go to Dagenham County High, which was... Um, a non-denominational school, you know, they taught religion there, but it wasn't Protestant. And I, I went in there. I was the only, I was the only Irish guy in the class, you know, and uh, and that was that was interesting, you know, being an, an Irish guy uh, in a in a class of, and they were okay. They were middle class, you know, lower middle class kind of thing. Uh, there were a few fights. There was a, a little bit of bullying, but not much, not much. And uh, I was a small guy, but I held my own, you know. So. Um, then after that, we I was still in school there and we moved to Ilford, which was um, near Dagenham. And again, it was a bit more upper in the in the class scale, it was a bit more upper class. And we stayed there for three years. And then 
it was fascinating how, you know, a couple, my mother and father went to London with very little money. Hmm. He worked hard in Fords. He worked at the weekends on building sites. I was working in his building sites from about 10 years of age onwards, shoveling cement and carrying buckets here and there. And then my mother, um, she took in lodgers. And we were actually broke at one stage and she started taking in lodgers, we called them then. So in our little house in Dagenham, there were three small bedrooms. My mother and father were in one bedroom with the youngest. Four of us were in one bed in another bedroom. And the lodgers were all over the bloody place, you know. <laughs> and then they kept that house and they went to Ilford and bought another house. And then they bought a second house near it. Mm. And after seven years in England, hard working, you know, they did enjoy themselves as well. They sold the whole lot and moved back to Ireland and bought a farm with the proceeds. You know, so they did very well in seven years. And you would have been sort of 14 years of age when they decided they were going to up sticks and move back to Cork. You've gone through sort of pretty formative years for a young fella there in London. Was that a very difficult thing for you to do, to, to move back to Cork then? I wouldn't say difficult, um, Phil. It was, it, was, um, it was challenging, okay? And, of course, when you're 14, you don't know these things. You know, it's easy to look back and say, oh, that was challenging. But do you know what the most challenging thing was? Um, it was losing the English accent, you know, because I can still talk like a cockney if I want to, you know, it just comes back to me. So Did you, you get know, a lot of stick for that when you came back to Cork? Well, it, it went very quickly, I can tell you. <laughs> and then, of course, I went to a Catholic school. Yeah. And, of course, in a Catholic school, it is Catholic. Yeah. And it was run by the brothers. And here am I, and I've been, you know, had spent three years, three and a half years in a Protestant school, a non-denominational, and I'm suddenly here in full of religion, coming at me right, left, and, left and centre, mm. and that was a huge change, you know. That's and the the brothers were very strict, and you had to adhere to the curriculum, and you had to do your catechism and do everything else, and eventually I fell out with them, you know. Yeah. So the big experience for me in in secondary school in in England and then Ireland was my religion, you know, was was challenged. Mm. And uh, I became a lapsed Catholic, I'd say, at around 15. Yeah. I mean, you would have been very much in the minority in Ireland at that stage. And I'm sure, especially, you know, in a rural area of Cork, uh, that that would have been, you know, did, did you get a lot of stick off the brothers then? Did you sort of put it up to them due to the experiences that you'd had in England? No, not really. Um, you just got on with life. It was only two particular brothers and one really in particular. But then the saving grace was that I was I became very good at rugby. And that was a help. You know, that was a huge help. You know, you're inside in it was called Pres Presentation Brothers College in Cork. And you know, you're on the rugby team and suddenly they they took their hands off you because yeah. you were on the team, you know. So that was that was a great help. It's amazing. I, I wish I, would, I had been better at rugby myself. I've gone to a rugby school. I may not have got into as much trouble, you know. But th that's part of your story. And I know there was a lot of time that you spent outside of Ireland in the work that you've done as a journalist since. But you've written a book called Gone to America, which the thing that amazed me about a con was how many people from your family actually went abroad, most of whom, eight of whom, I think, wound up in San Francisco. Am I right? That's correct. Um, you must remember, Phil, you know, well, sorry, how could you remember? Because you weren't there and I don't remember, you know. But in the, in those times from, it was actually from before the famine and um, that there was immigration from Ireland on a continuous basis. Remember now that, you know, the Ireland of that time was not industrialised like it was in England. Mm. So there were no jobs in Ireland and they, you know, the Irish had to leave. And then, of course, the leaving became a flood after the famine. And then it slowed down hugely after that. Well, I mean, over a million emigrated from 1945, 40, sorry, 1950 to 1975, you know, a million, a quarter of the population gone. 
And then it slowed down and people recovered from the famine, but you're still talking about subsistence living. Mm. And subsistence, subsistence living with large families, okay, it meant that when you had a large family there, there was probably only scope for two or three of them to stay at home, either on the home farm or marry a local farmer or become a nun or a priest, you know, and then the rest of them had to go somewhere. And for most people, including my, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, joining the British Army wasn't an option, but it was for many. And they, you know, like many of their neighbours, they headed for America. So, you know, it was just logical that they just go down to Cove or Queenstown, as it was called at the time, get on the boat, head off to New York or Boston, and then get the train across America. And of course, the connection with San Francisco was because there was a couple of neighbours had settled there. And the neighbours would send home sort of, um, they'd send home letters. Sometimes they'd send home family parcels to their own, their own families. And then, of course, the link is formed. Mm. And once the link is formed, you know, the next lot followed them. And they, they, they were my aunts and uncles. So they followed their neighbours and then they, they followed each other. It's called chain immigration. And, you know, when you look at the, the patterns of immigration virtually everywhere, once somebody starts moving and there's an Irish community in New York or Chicago or New Zealand or somewhere in Australia or as I heard yesterday in Argentina well then they'll pull another lot after them yeah. you know in the sort of a chain it's amazing the way that works the area I live in in Stockholm there's a lot of people from uh, the Kurdish region of Turkey and there's an awful lot of people who literally come from the same village and it started with one family and they became the anchor. And then, you know, maybe this time it was the internet rather than letters, but then they start to come, you know, the, the next family comes and the next family comes and sure soon enough, there's nobody left in the village at all. And they're all over here in Sweden. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's and true. What, what was there, am I right in saying that there was 12 in total and eight of them ended up in San Francisco? What, what did the pioneers do in San Francisco? What did they discover that made it worth living on the West Coast aircon? Uh, there's an interesting story there, um, Phil, and so far as the first guy had over, Bill was his name, and he headed for San Francisco, but like on the boat on the way over. Now, there's a little aside here, which is mm. worth mentioning, is that most people, or sorry, everybody I have spoken to, including myself, thought that the journey across the Atlantic in the early 1900s would have been hellish. Mm. People on third class, down in the hold, hungry, you know, unclean, you know, disease ridden, all the rest of it. The exact opposite was the case. Was it? Okay. And nobody has seen, th there's a little document that I was able to avail of, and it was it was through my family in California, and they had this little diary that was written by a relation, and he was told on the way over from, from Cork, write everything down as to what happened on the boat. And what he wrote down was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, these people went from, not total poverty, but, you know, minimal stuff, you know, survival li living, they went over, they got on the boat, they had big breakfast, they had morning tea, they had lunch, the big lunch, they had afternoon tea, they had full dinners, they had showers, um, they had running water, they had toilets which were inside instead of being out in the field, yeah. and, and they had a thing called crack. They had music and dancing, and there were some sexual activities going on as well. No, you know? <laughs> and, you know, so they had great fun going over. So as an aside... I'm mentioning that because that's a, that's a bit of unusual information that as far as you know, it's totally original. But anyway, so you're on the boat, uh, you're on the boat with maybe another five or 600 Irish people and they're coming from the same areas and they're coming from up around the west of Ireland and they get talking. So my uncle is on the boat and he's at San Francisco, San Francisco and somebody says, well, what are you going to do? And he said, I don't know. He said, you know, something will work out. And somebody said, well, we're going sheep farming. 
we're going sheep farming in Wyoming. You know, why don't you come up there to Douglas? You know, and they said, you're a sheep farmer. You know, you come from a mountain in West Cork. You've got sheep. You know all about it. So your man says, yeah, that's a good idea. So it goes out to Wyoming. Now, Wyoming is very different to West Cork. Okay. So and for those was, who aren't aware. Yeah. Yeah. So like suddenly he has left Shehan Mountain. He's in his head like he's envisaging a shop, you know, 60 or 70 or 100 euros. And next thing he's given a small donkey, he's given a tent, he's given some food, and he's sent out into the prairie for 3,000 euros, 3,000 sheep to mind them as they're lambing. And he's given a gun as well to shoot the wolves and the coyotes. So he went from a 60-year mountain farm out into this massive prairie of thousands and thousands of acres and thousands and thousands of sheep. So he took an indirect route to San Francisco. Much so, yeah. That's it's incredible. I mean, the, the scale of something like this, and this is something that you know those generations who went to America, we we just can't get our head around the size of the place. And this was part of the opportunity as well for going from sixty uh, animals to three thousand. Obviously, that's a whole lot more money as well. So, did he start to make his his seed capital there before moving on then to San Francisco? No, Phil. That's not the way it happened. He found the life too too tough. I mean, the yeah. winters were awful. They were absolutely so. awful. And then there was money to be made in a, fella called Butte, a place called Butte in Montana, mm. which was one of the biggest copper mines in the world, which was actually opened up and run by a, an Irishman from Cavan, mm. a fella called Daly. So uh, he met a few more guys and he went down to Butte in Montana and he went mining there for a, a couple of years, maybe. Mm. And he made a bit of money there. And strangely enough, he just got out in time because... After he left, there was a big explosion, the tragedy, and there was hundreds of miners killed. But he went on from there anyway, and he joined the American Army. Mm. Um, so that's around 1918, 1919, the end of the First World War. And then he went to San Francisco, and that's where he settled. And it was from there then that the rest of the counties, the next seven, went and settled around him. In, as you said, in not in the same village, but in the same part. It's called the Mission District. And the mission, this is amazing because there's a friend of mine, she's a poet above in Dublin there, and she loved that place when she lived there a few years ago. I've been, I passed through there myself. Um, so what did he do when he got to the mission district after spending his time in the army? And, you know, there's not much sheep farming in the mission district, or at least I wasn't <laughs> when I was there. <laughs> no, no, he got a job. I'm trying to remember what it was. I, I think he was driving a, a cable, one of those cars, you know, street cars. Yeah. I think he got a, they all, they all got what we would call basic jobs. I mean, mm. those uncles that followed him, he worked as a tugboat captain. And mm. um, the women, of course, they worked, uh, one, another uncle, he worked the county, we call it the county council. He yeah. worked for San Francisco Council paving roads. And um, and then the girls, the girls all went and worked as domestic servants. Yeah. You know, and then they mixed around with the local community. And so one by one, they were paired off and they married. Yeah, they, they found people there. And would they have been very much people who stuck to their own community there, Con, or would they have met people outside of that community? Well, from our record of the marriages, they stuck mainly to their own community. Mm. There was only one of the Carneys, my aunt, she married a fellow from Sweden. And, ah, um, they out Swedes. I love the Swedes. They've been they here a long time. Out, yeah. there's, a a, there's a connection. There's a Swedish connection. And his name was Knut, Knut Olsen. Good man, Knut. Fair play to you. And they couldn't, they couldn't get on with Knut, so they called him Bob. <laughs> so he became Bob Olson, and I met him. He was a lovely man, you know. 
It's yeah. amazing. And it, given a new name and the whole lot, I said, okay, this new thing is over. You're finished there. So you're going to be Bob. And, and now you're from West Cork like the rest of us, you know? Exactly. Uh, one of the things, one of the expressions that I always find a little bit chilling, but there's great warmth in it as well. We used to describe somebody emigrating back in those times as the American wake because we never expected to see them again, Con. Did you get to experience, you said there, obviously, that you, that you met Bob Olson and that. Did you have a lot of contact with that part of the family, even though they were on the West Coast of America? I had a lot of contact with them um, in later life. So that would have been when I went over for the first time in 1975. So that was years later. That was a half a century uh, afterwards. Um, the American Wake is interesting, uh, Phil, insofar as I did. Re- I've done a lot of research with the background of this book, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the American Wake is not as widespread as we thought. And in fact, in West Cork and certainly in the park where my people came from, there was no such thing as an American Wake. So I was surprised at that, very surprised. But then I did the research and apparently it was much more common as you went up the west of Ireland. Um, So I don't know why it was that way. I don't know. Uh, Maybe it was because, you know, they had settled on at that stage in the late 1800s, early 1900s that, look, this is a part, this is a way of life. This is a part of life, a part of living, you know, and off you go and carry on. Maybe West Cork people are different. I don't know. I think it's, you know, you kind of have to find a way of dealing with it because, like I say, when you expect that person who's, you know, they get on the boat and you think, well, geez, I'm never going to see them again. We didn't know at that stage that you were going to get airplanes. And now, geez, it's probably cheaper now to go to America than what it was when you first went in 1975. But when you did go there the first time, Con, was there much of West Cork left in them, do you think? Or had they been changed by living in America? Ah, they had changed, Phil. There's no doubt in order about that. Um, They were still... They would still talk about their West Cork. No, hold on. They would talk a little bit. I mean, my mother was on this side. My uncle was on this side. My aunt was on this side. And they would know them, you know, through their sons and daughters um, mixing. But, you know, to be honest, that's a good question. There wasn't a lot of talked about Ireland. Mm. You know, they didn't talk about the old home place or anything. There was, there was no nostalgia there. They yeah. were Americans at this stage and they were having fun, mm. you know. And that, that's a big part of it. They love their fun. My family did any of the Carneys over in San Francisco. They were known for having fun, you know. Yeah. And but was that through know, music or through through dance or song or that kind of thing? And, and the other thing, you know, alcohol. Don't <laughs> <laughs> you mention it? You know? they, they love it. They love to have a good party. You yeah. know? And just to, I th- when the aunts died, um, I was at one of those parties. When the aunts died, so the last aunt is dead about 30 years, the parties kind of stopped. There was a few yeah. get but again, they were funerals. And the first party they've had in years was almost exactly four weeks ago. It was on the 1st of October when I went over to launch the book. Oh, wow. And, and they had a family gathering and there was 90 people of Carney descendants there. And some of those people over there had never met each other. Yeah. And of course, I hadn't met most of them, but they had a great party. So now they're saying, we'll resurrect this party idea. We'll have another one in two or three years. Be fantastic. I mean, geez, you nearly want to have it every year so that you don't be losing people along the way, you know? <laughs> Did you find yourself able to relate to your cousins there, Con? Because I often found when, you know, my mother and father's relatives would come back from America that they really weren't like us. Their clothes weren't like us. As you mentioned with your own experience in England going to school there, their upbringing wasn't the same as ours. You know, there were certain things they would have had, you know, an appreciation of music or a drink or a song or that kind of thing. But they, I found it to be very, very different when I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Were you able to relate to them when you met them first? Um, well, you, I'd relate to anybody, to be honest with you. Yeah, for Cork. <laughs> for Cork, you know. But um, it's, it's a good question. Um, 
they didn't make, when I went over in 75, no, I met two families. I met my mother's family and my father's family. Right. And there were two drastically different experiences. I had two aunts on my mother's father's side that went over and I had the eight then from my mother's side. Yeah. And like they were chalk and cheese. The carnies were all fun. They had done, they'd all done fairly well. None of them had become doctors or dentists or presidents or anything like that, yeah. but they all did very well. My father's family, in contrast, I remember there were two girls, two aunts. They married, I didn't meet, I met one of the husbands, and he was a fascinating guy. You know, yeah. he was, I think, of English origin. He had fought in the um in the cavalry over there in 1919, when he was 19 years of age, he joined the US Cavalry. Wow. And uh, so he had, he had spent a lot of time at that. And we I spent time with, with him. And they were different. They were completely different. And um, I can't explain the difference, except the Carnies are more clannish mm. and they stuck together. And um, whereas the Hurley side weren't that way. No, there was only two ants there and the family wasn't that big anyway. And they were living in different parts. But to go back to your, it got it, you know, Phil, I haven't ever considered that fully. Mm. But I had two Americans over here recently, you know, two cousins who I'd never met before, and they were at the gathering. And, you know, we talked about everything, but they weren't even going back to Bantry to West Cork to see where it all happened, you know. No. Um, they came over to go golfing. Yeah. And, and they did, and it was great. They had fun, you know. But I, and, and thinking about the Americans over who we were over there, there weren't too many questions coming at me you know, about what was life like in Ireland. Yeah. Oh, no, even as distinct from going back sort of 100 years. Yeah. So, um, but I suppose when I think of my own experience for living in London, I know it was only there for seven years, you know, you kind of have to sort of think about where you are and you have to fit in where you are and and you get on with life as it is where you are yeah. and you become part of that environment. So I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised that they're not all the time, only all the coning and all the about old Ireland and all this old yeah. stuff, you know. I'm sorry, I call it that. <laughs> they got on with their lives, you know. Yeah. Now, again, as, a, as a, an interesting aside, the um, the Americans did have their parties. But when yeah. I was living in London, especially in Ilford, my mother and father had, um, I can't remember they call it, it was an Irish house. Yeah. You know, had, they had those all over the world, as you probably know. And we were the Irish house where people from the Irish community, and the Irish wasn't, they weren't a close community, they weren't close together. They were spread all over Ilford and different places in Dagenham. But they would come together now and then on usually, I think it was a Saturday night, maybe a Friday night. And uh, my mother could play the melodeon and they'd be singing and dancing and they'd play cards. And of course, there would be drinking going on. And they were great crack. Yeah. So, so the Irish did have that sort of carry on now and then. And that was, I, I loved that. So I loved yeah. that. Uh, that's the amazing thing. One of the first guests in this podcast was a man who writes for the Boston Globe called Dan Shaughnessy. And Dan's people left just after the famine from Galway. And he didn't even realize that he was, you know, he had that Irish connection until he started to go to college at Holy Cross, which is a Catholic college in Massachusetts, you know. And that's why I was interested in that part of it, you know, and how they relate back to us again. If I could ask you personally, Con. I was always very jealous of my older relatives who lived in America because, of course, you know, it was on our televisions at that time and it was in our newspapers and the Hollywood films and that. Did you have that desire to live there yourself? Because no doubt you would have had the chance to go over if you wanted to, but you stayed in Cork, did you? I will feel now, you see, you're a younger fellow than me. I didn't have any television when I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a few years older than you. Um, I, look, no, I mean, I did. When I finished college, I had three offers to do. I, I did a good qualification in agricultural science and I had three qualifications, uh, three masters and one was a PhD, Scotland, America and New Zealand. 
And I didn't take up any of them because I was going out with a lovely woman who I married to still. And she didn't want to go. So we stayed here and I ended up writing for the Irish Farmers Journal. Mm. Um, but the other question, no, I never had a, a want to go to America. In fact, I never really had a want to go anywhere. I like Ireland. Yeah. I enjoy the crack. I enjoy the people. Now, there obviously there's downsides in it. And we've often talked to this about people. But if I had a choice of where to live in the morning, and it, and it wasn't going to be Ireland, right? Mm. America would not be on the list, right? Would it not, no? No, it would not be on the list. That, that's definite. And um, number one would probably the Scandinavian countries, maybe Denmark. I knew I know Denmark quite well. Yeah. Um, number two on the list would probably be New Zealand. Number three would be France. Yeah. Okay. And and Canada would feature as well, apart from the bloody weather, you know, because yeah. I have a son living in Ottawa and we were over to see him recently. And I, I love I love Canada. I really yeah. like Canada. And I hope I'm not insulting my American cousins, but I'm not over the moon about America. Maybe that's probably due to recent politics and things. Yeah, well, it was uh, somebody recently described to me about. I said to this woman, she lived in Canada, and I said, well, "What's it like living in Canada?" She says, "It's like living in America without the problems," which I thought was a very good. Uh, That's very good. Sewing up in this. And you know something I discovered in Canada, Phil, is that um, per 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 member of population, there are more guns in Canada than there are in America. Yeah. I didn't know that, and That's yet the there's thing. no gun violence in Canada. Oh, the same thing in Norway. Norway has some of the highest per capita gun ownership in the world, but they're all kept under lock and key and it's all very sort of strict and that kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, that, that's a debate for another day. I'm sure we'll find exactly. somebody who'll talk to us on this problem. I wanted to talk to you about the research that you did for the book, Con, because as you mentioned, you turned up some amazing stuff. And this is the great thing of your journalistic background and your background as an acad academic yeah. means that you're capable of doing this. When you decided you were going to tell the story of the people in your family who went to America, where did you even start in terms of getting the source material together? Okay. Uh, I was very fortunate in soccer as I have a first cousin in, in San Francisco. She's a nun. She's 85 years of age. And she has been the family um, record keeper and historian. So she has all the records going back to our grandparents back in 1893. Mm -hmm. And she has the whole, and inside in her head, she has loads of stories, you know? And so she has all these stories and I, she became my co-author, even though I did all the writing. Mm -hmm. She was part of, she, well, she's on the cover, so she is a co-author in a different way. So she was the first port of call. So then, and I've done this with previous books as well. And again, as my background in journalism, you don't just depend on one source, no. you know? So I set up a research group of about 20 people. And of that 20, about 13 were in America, mostly West Coast, mm -hmm. and then seven uh, were in Ireland. And every time I'd have an issue about one thing or another, I'd just stick it out to the group and see what would happen. Mm -hmm. And I got loads of tidbits and stuff from there. And then I got the gems. I got the gem about um, Jordanine Diary or his journal crossing the Atlantic. That is a gem, unpublished. It's an amazing story. And then the other story that I got was a, a memoir which is unpublished again, but it's been typed out by my first cousin, a fellow called Gary Cotter. He's 95, okay? And he wrote his story. And I included lots of that in the book, mm -hmm. you know, about his experiences at, around prohibition, mm -hmm. uh, about his, his stepfather, who was a right, um, not a great guy, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> you did and well there. You got to have that very diplomatic. I, I had to, yeah. And how he handled it during the recession, the, the, the Great Recession in the States, the Great Depression, and then his early days in, in, the, in the Second World War, you know, how he joined. So I have all that So I got, you know, Bill, when you're doing research, when you lift one stone, 
there's another one underneath it. And, you, and then things crawling around and you keep going. The big difficulty in my in my experience is when you stop, you know, because I could have, I could have kept going for forever almost researching bits and pieces here, there and everywhere. Now, again, I did a lot of research by reading. I'm a good reader and you know, I've half a shelf now of books on history about the famine and Ireland and the United States and all the rest of it. Um, and a big decision I had to make, Phil, was to actually, how do you structure the book? Do you tell, you know, do you tell the history and fit in the people into it? Or do you talk about the people and put history in as a background? And I did that one. Yeah. I talked about their lives and then the background is there. But the background didn't, it, it determined some of what they did, but they dealt with it. You know, you know, they they they, they went through um, the First World War, the Second World War. They went through the Civil War in Ireland. They went through the War of Independence. They went through the Great Depression in the States. They went through the Economic War in Ireland. But they lived through that. So the story is not about the Economic War or the Great Depression. It's about how these people handled themselves during that. And I think that's actually the, the biggest strength of the book. I always prefer when it's driven by the characters, driven by the people there. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not that what happened is incidental because that's what drives the story forward. But they're the story, not the events or the times. It's it's their lives and, and their sort of struggle to establish themselves in America uh, that is the story. You mentioned there, one of the things I find about writing books is you get so much material that it almost becomes overwhelming. You made the choice to tell the stories of the people. Is, is there more books to come here, Con? Because it sounds to me like you're only scraping the tip of the ice here. Uh, there isn't in this story, Phil, not, not, not about my the Carney family, and I'm not going to go near my, my father's family because there are too many skeletons in the in the cupboard. <laughs> we'll have to wait until everybody's dead before we can go near that. Kind and, of I'm, and I'll be dead before that happens. No, um, I, I have a, I'm, I'm, I, my next project, I'm marketing the book at the moment because it's self-published, so I'm not going through the normal channels where somebody takes thousands of books and puts them into shops. I'm not doing that. Um, I'm not too worried about numbers, to be honest with you. Um, I don't need to make money. It was a story that needed to be t- told. And I'm delighted that people who want to hear that story have probably got it. I would love to see people on the west of Ireland getting more of it because it's a west of Ireland story, West Cork, Kerry, Mayo, etc. Um, no, I, I've decided to go into fiction, Phil. Yeah. And um, my next book is going to be fiction. And um, yeah, and I'll see where that takes me. But that's after Christmas, you know. But yeah. but to be honest, you feel I just love writing, yeah. You know, and I and I I love the research. The research is frustrating, but you know, Phil. Some people say this to us, but hang on a second. I've been at this for fifty years nearly. I mean, this is a skill. If you've got a carpenter in you know, to put up a door, like, and he did a great job, you say, "Aren't you brilliant?" He said, "No, I'm a carpenter. That's my yeah. job. I'm supposed to be able to do this. I'm like supposed that. to be able. So I'm supposed to be able to write, mm-hmm. and I am thankfully." But you know what? That's the thing that people don't really realize is that you know somebody say, okay, like I work a lot with sports. Like, oh yeah, you write a match reports, four hundred words or six hundred words. It's not. It's thirty years of looking at football and basketball and boxing and mixed martial arts and knowing the seed and breed of everybody and this kind of thing. You know where they come from, their stories, and knowing what's important and what's not in that. And again, that's what's so brilliant at what you've done. You have that sort of journalist eye for for picking out the story. And um, one last way before I ask you where we can get the book, where people around the world can get the book. What where? has your sort of target market been is it people on the west coast of ireland or is it on the west coast of america or people in australia who are your readers for this book Con? well that's okay in a general term in a general um thing it's people in america and people in ireland mm. okay and america there's 46,000 americans over there of irish descent or something so it's if i can get a million of those i'd be thrilled if i can get a hundred thousand i'd be absolutely delighted <laughs> 
there's a market in England as well, you know, yeah. London, Manchester, Liverpool, and there is a market in Ireland. Now, within those markets, this is interesting, this is fascinating. The people who will buy this book will be mainly women. Is and, that right? Yes, and they will be mainly mature women. That's a good word now, mature, by the way, okay? And uh, I was down at a book launch of Alice Taylor recently. She's a wonderful writer, and she wrote the introduction to this book. That's right. And I saw people buying her book down there, and they were all mostly, they were mostly mature women. And I spoke with Alice afterwards, and I had a few chats with a few other people, and I said, that's, they're the people that will buy this book. Now, they'll buy it to read it themselves, but they'll buy it to their husbands, they'll buy it to give it to their fathers and mothers, and they maybe buy it to send it abroad to their, their cousins and that sort of thing, you know. But they're the people that will see the value in this book. And mm. um, this is this is what I'm getting, okay? And this is what this is what I'm aiming at. So I'll be try, I, I have two speaking engagements coming up now in the next two weeks, and I I know there'll be mostly women at that. Mm. You know, probably be eighty percent women and that sort of stuff. But I don't mind. Um, I'm happy with that. You know. Mm. Well, I think it's one of those things I've heard the statistic before that women tend to become very interested in genealogy and family trees and that kind of thing, that they're very much the target market for that. And by osmosis, then it sort of spreads into the rest of the family, because when somebody sees the matriarch doing that, they go on, they want to know, OK, if that's my mother, well, then I want to know where her people came from and where her people's people came from and so on and so forth. You know, um, are you getting a good reaction to it from around the world? Because it's it's only recently published, isn't it? It's uh, it's on the market. It's about the first of September in America. There was a delay in Europe, and so it's in Europe since about uh, late September, early October. And mm -hmm. um, I get here a very. Do you know, Phil? It's very hard to judge. Yeah. You know, and um, some people will come back and they'll gush. This oh, fantastic book and all the rest of it. And then you get nothing from somebody and you say, well, do they think it's not good book or are they afraid to ring up or whatever? So look, I'm happy with it. The people who have commented on it, they love it. Yeah. They like the structure, they like the way it's written. And I think most of all, and you put your finger on it there, like is that this is about the people who lived through a historical period. And it shows the history that was there and how these people lived through it and got on with their lives. And like as you in the book, someone, you know, they were killed during this period, you know, that my, my aunt in California. Um, so and the people that died of TB, there was someone who died of TB as well. So instead of writing about TB, this is the person who died, you know. So I, I want to make another point, Phil, is that, you know, this is all this is a historical document. Mm -hmm. OK, and I've been told that it is a historical document. And um, I'm reminded of a, an old African saying, you know, one of the old Africans, and they'd say, don't die with the story in you. Mm -hmm. And I've said to these people on numerous occasions, like, look, you know, if you've got a story to tell, go and say it, tell it. And OK, you might be a writer, but you can put it into a tape recorder. Yep. You can get somebody from the local school. You can get your grandchild and they'll type it out for you. But get it down. I mean, two of the most valuable pieces in this book that um, I've got are from people who wrote stuff in the 1926 and the other guy who wrote it in 1950 or something. Those yep. are all down. And it's all there for past. And it doesn't matter if only 10 people read it or 10 million readers. It's yep. there as a resource about what it was really like to live in as an individual during whatever period, you know, it was. 
But that's the, the, the very point of this podcast, Con, and I said it from the very beginning, is that there's no such thing as an ordinary Irish person abroad. And this is my effort to record those stories in much the same way as you've done mm-hmm. with your book. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's absolutely vital that, that you do this and that I do this, right? Because at some point in 50, 60, 100 years, somebody's going to happen across this conversation between you and me when they're trying to find out about the Irish in America and they're going to find two elfless sitting there talking about what happened, you know, 150 years previously. And without that, we don't have any history and again if you go back to the time you started writing about so many of the Irish records were destroyed as I'm sure you found in the course of your research was was that hard for you to find because I know you went to uh, registries of births and marriages and deaths and so on did you find what you needed there or was there some that missed I was forced as I said that my co-author sister Nora Kearney had all that done yeah so that information was there in front of me fortunately Mm-hmm. Fantastic, because you're lucky in that way, because I know a lot of people who've gone to find that and they get, they get back to a certain point, And mm-hmm. then beyond that, you know, because the local town hall or whatever was burned down, there's nothing left there, you know. Yeah. Tell us, Con, where can people get the book in time for Christmas? What's the best way to order it? The best way to order the book is on Amazon. Just go it's into, on Amazon.com. Give Amazon. Jeff Bezos a few quid. We don't care. We give it to him now. Go to Amazon. And go it's to called Amazon, a- wherever you live, and look for uh, um, Gone to America by Con Hurley. By Con Hurley, and they can get that then, and that'll be posted off to them, and it'll be under the Christmas tree for their dad, or their granddad, or their grandmother, or their aunt, or whoever else, or maybe it might be sent to Sydney or to Auckland or to somewhere else as well. Exactly, you know? exactly. And I'd love to get fee- people who buy it and read it. I really would love feedback, and my my email is conhurleywriter at gmail dot com. I'll give you a bit of instant feedback here, right? I thought, ah, yeah, sure. I'll read this Chancellor's book now before I talk to him and everything else like that. And the first the first chapter, Connor went, hang on a second. This deserves time because it's a fantastic document. And I want to take in all the details as I go along. And for anybody listening to this conversation there, if you want a book that's going to get you through January, go to Amazon.com, Gone to America by Con Hurley, and get it in it. But like, it's not something you're going to read in an afternoon or whatever, but you'll pass many the winter's night here in the Northern Hemisphere, many, many the summer's day down below in the Southern hemisphere reading this con thanks so much for talking to me and i hope we'll have a chance to talk again soon we'll have a bit of fiction in the shops thank you Phil. it was a pleasure talking to you too and i wish everybody out there happy christmas we make two to three thousand irish copies a day making a drink is sort of a performance in itself because it's the way it works you're pouring the drinks out so what we're going to do here is we're going to make like 10 irish coffees first putting hot water in glasses heat it up so now i'm going to empty it out Then I put two cubes of sugar in each glass. Now I put the hot coffee in, about three quarters of the way full. And I'll even them out and then stir up the sugar. Here we go. And the whiskey. Finish it off a little extra. And now I get the cream whipped up. Nice layer right on top, floats beautifully. There we go. That's a beautiful Irish coffee. Last year we did about a half a million Irish coffees. It was 48,000 gallons of Tullamore Dew whiskey. 13 gas trucks filled with Tullamore Dew. A lot of whiskey. Well, in 1952, the drink was reinvented from an original recipe from Coins, Ireland. And the Irish coffee became really uniquely San Francisco. It's the ultimate cold day beverage, but on a warm day, it works just as well.
On a warm day, it works just as well with Irish coffee. There you go. That was the Buena Vista Cafe there in San Francisco, where they claimed they made, I think it was like 5 million Irish coffees in a year. It's become a very famous place for that. And you can actually see that clip on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube there and just uh, search for the best Irish coffee in San Francisco. Now, the way they make it is, it's it's remarkable to see the whole, uh, as the chap was saying there, Paul Nolan was saying in the clip there, it's a remarkable performance because he gets the coffee pot and there's none of this kind of oh you know Jesus I might spill but no no lads he lines up like 12 glasses and he goes to the coffee pot and just bangs it out the whole lot of it and there's whiskey splashing everywhere and there's whipped cream and there's all sorts of stuff and it looks fantastic and it, essentially what it ended up turning into was a free ad on the Global Gale podcast for Tullamore Dew Whiskey uh, of course you can make it any whiskey you like but uh, that's what I turned out to here if you want to advertise in this podcast get in touch over social media drop an email to philipandablana.se uh, because we're always looking for sponsors to help keep these things going you can also become a sponsor as a private person by going to patreon.com forward slash our man in Stockholm and as I was saying at the top of the show there there's a whole bunch of podcasts come out there on a more or less weekly basis there so for a five or a month if you get involved there it really really helps me to keep this going um, slightly shorter episode this week we're going to cut it back to maybe one interview one longer interview with one person every week if we can do that and try to keep them coming to every weekend I'd originally planned to publish them on Wednesdays of every week but it seems that uh, certainly for the European calendar it works out well I published them on a Saturday morning here central european time so if you're in australia you get it in the evening for when you're heading off to the bathroom to brush your teeth and go to sleep there my jesus knows my voice would put anybody to sleep at times uh, if you're in america you'll get it there late on a friday night it'd be there for when you're going walking the dog or going to the gym on a saturday morning so that's the plan at the moment is to keep them coming once a week but to do that i need you to get in touch with your stories and i need you to support the podcast financially if you can at all and in particular i would say it's not one of those things where, ah, oh, no, I'm not going to mention your business or your book or your whatever uh, unless you're giving me something. It's exactly the opposite, lads. If you have a, a successful business story, if you have a book coming out or an album coming out or if you're doing something in your community there, they're the stories that this is here to bring you. Uh, if you do want to advertise, that's great, but that's not sort of, you know, there's no sort of demand that people sort of cross my palm with silver to be on this podcast. In fact, it's the very opposite. The only thing we really want to do is to bring you stories from the Irish community around the world. Right, I shall leave it at that for this week my friends go safely wherever you are in the world look after one another yourselves look after one another and she'll be back again next week with another story from the global gales from the irish around the world good luck (laughs) 